This is a Federal News Network podcast. Pentagon planners know the U.S. military needs new technologies, new innovations, if it hopes to stay on top. But many of the innovation initiatives don't gain scale. My next guest says that's because of the 1960s era planning, programming, budgeting, and execution process the Defense Department uses, known as the PPB&E. Jerry McGinn is executive director of the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University, and he joins me now in studio. Jerry, good to have you back. Great to be here, Tom. All right, so the PPB&E dates back to 1960s. It's worked this long. What's the matter with it? Well, you know, as you said, it, it was state-of-the-art in the 1960s when McNamara and the Wiz kids came into the Pentagon. It centralized planning, you know, trying to build out and define requirements for defense programs and requirements going forward, and then planning it in a centralized way. However, commercial industry has moved on long ago and now does innovation through iteration. You know, they set broad parameters, give portfolio budgeting or different approaches that allow much more dynamic development of products and concepts. And meanwhile, the Department of Defense is stuck with the 60s approach, which requires three years to really plan and then program and then execute on a system, which doesn't really match well without the needs of the department today. Well, just to play devil's advocate, some of the enduring systems that are still being used, still reliable, F-15, F-16, F-18, a lot of these platforms were developed in that old PPB and E process. Although if you read the detailed history of them, they were all late. They were all over budget. They were all destined to failure. And But nevertheless, they somehow got to fruition. But that's not good enough now. No, I don't think it is. I mean, because with those programs, they sort of prove the point is that if you're trying to set requirements for things that you need in five or six years, you know, defining those and locking those in five years in advance of, you know, the earliest prototypes is kind of silly. So you need a way to be able to do that and then scale it. So, you know, we need to sort of go back to the future and think about how the department did budgeting before uh, PPBE and how commercial industry does it now, which is why it's really timely for that Congress passed this commission on the PPBE reform in the 2022 National Defense Authorization Act. And that commission, um, a lot of commissions just sort of yawn, you know, like, you know, those things sort of never kind of lead anywhere. But the last couple of years, you know, the the effort on uh, the Solarian Commission on Cybersecurity and the Commission on Artificial Intelligence were both very impactful. So we've got some good recent history. And, you know, I like to think that the PPP could do the same. So this commission is at work now, but it hasn't issued what its findings are yet. And not quite. I mean, there. I think there are 14 commissioners to be named, and they've identified 11 of them. I think there are a few left to be named. However, it's sort of caught up in the budget process, believe it or not. They can't start the work until the 22 uh, budget is passed, which it is not. So they have to appoint a, you know executive director for the staff. And then it's a three-year kind of process for them. Earliest results will be in 23. So it's going to take a little bit of time. But the nice thing to see is there's strong bipartisan commitment and executive and congressional commitment to do something about this. Do you see, say, the possibility of dual systems? Because some things you can plan in advance. Manpower, for example. Planners know the cost of manpower. They know what the direct and indirect costs of that are going to be actuarially pretty accurately way into the future, Mm -hmm. whereas development of a new platform, for example, can go any of a million ways. 
So could it be that they need a dual system mm -hmm. and some part of the budget is set aside under a different planning system mm -hmm. than the PPB&E? Yeah, no, that's a great point, Tom. And I think this is going to have to be done through iteration and piloting. You know, they're going to have to figure out where do we need this kind of approach? Because there are some things where you don't need this kind of flexibility that is very dynamic. But very much in, in development are systems that our warfighters need for today and tomorrow. We need that. Because you see there's been a lot of innovation efforts over the past three administrations, bringing in new technology and so on. But the challenge is a lot of those, as you mentioned at the outset, have been scale. And that's because the budget was built three years ago and, you know, trying to backfill or adjust do reprograms, it's really hard to do. So we need to have the ability to do that in a more dynamic way. I think the explosive resistant troop carriers of the Iraq war yeah. era are an example where Secretary Bob Gates said, we need these now mm -hmm. because the conflict is killing soldiers in crazy numbers. And that was developed and fielded for the Pentagon in a breathtakingly short time. Yep. That's the kind of thing you mean. Exactly. Yeah, our colleague um, Jim Hask just put out a book on that, a case study on the MRAP development, marketing to the military. You know, it's sort of an exception that proves the rule, you know, that it was so hard to do. And it required Gates to really just, you know, grab people by the neck and drive it. And we need a way to do that, which is not as Herculean of an effort required. And one of the important things about this is this has to be done in a transparent way. This is not something so the Pentagon gets their pot of money and they can go do what they want. It's we've got to change how we do reporting because Congress needs oversight, right? So, And that's very appropriate. And we have very clear reporting ways to do it now under the PPBE. How does that impact this? So that's an important part of this commission, a critical part, because otherwise you're not going to get buy-in on Capitol Hill and the executive branch. We're speaking with Jerry McGinn, executive director of the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. And this issue then is not really a procurement issue, although procurement itself is a function that is under a lot of scrutiny in the Pentagon, always is. Mm -hmm. Every year in the NDAA, there's something having to do with buying and procurement. But you're really talking about a much wider system mm -hmm. of which procurement is only almost the tail end. I think so. But I think my perspective is that you see the inadequacy of the PPP system most dramatically in the procurement and R&D space, which, as you said, you know, the uh, personnel and operations maintenance are less impacted. So I would encourage the commission not to take so much of a financial management approach to the commission, but really focus on where is this not allowing us to have the most capable military we need for today. And I posit that it's in these areas, in the procurement and our research development areas. And that's where I think change would be the most beneficial for the department. Because you've got these units, AFWORKS, and there's several yeah. other workses throughout the defense establishment. And you've got the Defense Innovation Unit. You've got all these different gambits to try to speed things up, but they all operate kind of at a low scale year after year. And right. that's, that's what you're arguing also. Yeah. And you saw this out in um, at the, the Reagan Defense Forum in December. Secretary Austin gave remarks about the need that the department has to do better. Um, and I, I would agree because, I mean, CIBRs, the small business innovation research, are small efforts, you know, that are done by AFWORKS and so on, which are great, but they don't scale. And there's a, there was a real tension at the Reagan Defense Forum where the Silicon Valley VC companies and others made it very clear. It's like, look, time's running out. We need to be able to find some ways that we get production contracts out of these innovation efforts and not just little prototypes that don't go anywhere. And just to give credit to McNamara, he was a systems planner yeah. and production man. If you love the Ford Falcon, then you love Robert S. McNamara. 
<laughs> no, I know. I think it's right, but you know, but you know, that was a very different time, and I think uh, the automobile industry has moved on. But I, what I mean is, yeah. he came in as a radical change agent yes. right at the very top. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was president of Ford. I think three months before Kennedy tapped him to become defense secretary, he was young, and he took the entire thing and shook that building. And I think there are people that are still mad about it, but. <laughs> That kind of agent, I think, is needed probably to affect this type of change if this commission says, here's what we got to do. That's a fair point. It does come down to leadership. And, you know, I'm hopeful the commission delivers in a way that enables the department and Congress to run with it. Jerry McGinn is executive director of the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. It was so great to be with you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Plan and execute your listening. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, And then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, As part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader, that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also 
reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience? And to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, 
Let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, And I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it you were amazing and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because i could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um make one other quick uh comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.